This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tilling House resonator when you've got Psychedelic Water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for Curvy Girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Size up ladies. Some pretty good stuff. I think I've got, a, I've got a sickness for the thickness and I have to recommend Curvy Girl. All right, also Glary. Fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much, and back to the show. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer, and Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, your host for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Book Club. This month, or this chunk of the month at least, we are doing the terror by Arthur Mackin. Yes, we've done this in the past, but this is a better copy, and when a better copy shows up, hey, I'm going to put it on and take the other one off. So if you liked the old copy of The Terror, well, you should, you should download it. Go to pgttcm.com, and then that'll send you on another link. That'll send you on another link because it's such an old episode. I don't even know if it was the same podcast uh, provider that I was using when I started. Or, uh, anyway, yeah. Hit. So, Arthur Mackin. We know Arthur Mackin. We love Arthur Mackin. Uh, famous Welsh writer. Uh, wrote The White People, Great God Pan. Uh, we have episodes of people talking about Arthur Mackin, so go into the archive, dive around for that. I believe... Uh, probably Ken Hyde or Andrew Grace talking about Arthur Mackin in the past. And yeah, no, that's probably going to be somewhere around 2017, 2018, 2019. We have a lot of that kind of stuff. So check that out. And it may not say People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's a it may say Black Clock Audio Tales. So yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, this should be two chapters 
a little intermission with some commercials to help pay the bills. But yeah, and it should be about seven episodes. So hopefully you're enjoying this if you're several episodes into this. And I hope you're having a good commute. I hope you're having fun folding laundry. I hope you're having fun watching your kid at the playground while you do whatever you do. I hope you're having a good flight and that uh, you make your connections safely. I hope that your workday is going well, or I hope that, uh, you know, you're just, your day off is going well too. And uh, yeah, everything's cool and chill. All right, well, here we go with some Terra from Arthur Mackin to mess up your tranquil lives. I haven't used that voice for a while. I hope I didn't blow anyone's ears out. Okay, here we go. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll send you down to Sathagwa. Go to the shop, check out our sponsors. Recording by Lilith Brander. The Terror by Arthur Machen, Chapter 7. The Case of the Hidden Germans. Lewis gasped for a moment, silent in contemplation of the magnificence of rumour. The Germans already landed, hiding underground, striking by night, secretly, terribly, at the power of England. Here was a conception which made the myth of the Russians a paltry fable, before which the legend of Mons was an ineffectual thing. It was monstrous, and yet... He looked steadily at Merritt, a square-headed, black-haired, solid sort of man. He had symptoms of nerves about him for the moment, certainly, but one could not wonder at that, whether the tales he told were true, or whether he merely believed them to be true. Lewis had known his brother-in-law for twenty years or more, and had always found him a sure man in his own small world. But then, said the doctor to himself, those men... If they once get out of the ring of that little world of theirs, they are lost. Those are the men that believed in Madame Blavatsky. Well, he said, what do you think yourself? The Germans landed and hiding somewhere about the country. There's something extravagant in the notion, isn't there? I don't know what to think. You can't get over the facts. There are the soldiers with their rifles and the guns at the works all over Staffordshire. And those guns go off. I told you I'd hurt them. Then who are the soldiers shooting at? That's what we ask ourselves at Middlingham. Quite so, I quite understand. It's an extraordinary state of things. It's more than extraordinary. It's an awful state of things. It's terror in the dark. And there's nothing worse than that. As that young fellow I was telling you about said, at the front you do know what you're up against. And people really believe that a number of Germans have somehow got over to England and have hit themselves underground? People say they've got a new kind of poison gas, something that they dig underground places and make the gas air and lead it by secret pipes into the shops. Others say that they throw gas bombs into the factories. It must be worse than anything they've used in France, from what the authorities say. The authorities? Do they admit that there are Germans in hiding about Middlingham? No, they call it explosions. But we know it isn't explosions. We know in the Midlands what an explosion sounds like and looks like. And we know that the people killed in these explosions are put into the coffins and the works. 
their own relations are not allowed to see them. And so you believe in the German theory? If I do, it's because one must believe in something. Some say they've seen the gas. I heard that a man living in Dunwich saw it one night like a black cloud with sparks of fire in it floating over the tops of the trees by Dunwich Common. The light of an ineffable amazement came into Lewis's eyes. The night of Remnant's visit, the trembling vibration of the air, the dark tree that had grown in his garden since the setting of the sun, the strange leafage that was starred with burning with emerald and ruby fires, and all vanished away when he returned from his visit to the garth, and such leafage had appeared as a burning cloud far in the heart of England. What intolerable mystery, what tremendous doom was signified in this. But one thing was clear and certain, that the terror of Marion was also the terror of the Midlands. Lewis made up his mind most firmly that, if possible, all this should be kept from his brother-in-law. Marriage had come to Porth as to a city refuge from the horrors of Midlingham. If it could be managed, it should be spared the knowledge that the cloud of terror had gone before him and hung black over the western land. Lewis passed the port and sat in an even voice. Very strange, indeed. A black cloud with sparks of fire. I can't answer for it, you know, it's only a rumour. Just so, and you think, or you're inclined to think that these and all the rest you've told me is to be put down to the hidden Germans? As I say, because one must think something. I quite see your point. No doubt, if it's true, it's the most awful blow that has ever been dwelled at any nation in the whole history of man. The enemy established now vitals. But is it possible, after all? How could it have been worked? Merritt told Lewis how it had been worked, or rather, how people said it had been worked. The idea, he said, was that there was a part, and a most important part, of the great German plot to destroy England and the British Empire. The scheme had been prepared years ago, some thought soon after the Franco-Prussian War. Moltke had seen that the invasion of England, in the ordinary sense of the term invasion, presented very great difficulties. The matter was constantly in discussion in the inland military and high political circles, and the general trend of opinion in these quarters was that at the best the invasion of England would involve Germany in the gravest difficulties and leave France in the position of the Tertius Galdens. This was the state of affairs when a very high Prussian personage was approached by the Swedish professor Uvelius. Thus merit, and here I would say in parenthesis that this Uvelius was by all accounts an extraordinary man. Considered personally and apart from his writings, he would appear to have been a most amiable individual. He was richer than the generality of Swedes, certainly far richer than the average university professor in Sweden. As a shabby, green frock coat and a spattered furry hat was notorious in the university town where he lived. No one laughed, because it was well known that Professor Huvelius spent every penny of his private means and a large portion of his official stipend on works of kindness and charity. He hid his hat in a garret, someone said, in order that others might be able to swell on the first floor. 
It was told of him that he restricted himself to a diet of dry bread and coffee for a month in order that the poor woman of the streets, dying of consumption, might enjoy luxuries in hospital. And this was the man who wrote a treatise De Facinore Humano to prove the infinite corruption of the human race. Oddly enough, Professor Huvelius wrote the most cynical book in the world, Hobbes preaches rosy sentimentalism in comparison. With the very highest motives, he held that a very large part of human misery, misadventure, and sorrow was due to the false convention that the heart of man was naturally and in the main well disposed and kindly, if not exactly righteous. Murderers, thieves, assassins, violators, and all the host of the abominable, he says in one passage, are created by the false pretense and foolish credence of human virtue. A lion in a cage is a fierce beast indeed, but what will he be if we declare him to be a lamb and open the doors of his den? Who will be guilty of the deaths of the men, women, and children whom he will surely devour, save those who unlocked the cage? And he goes on to show that kings and the rulers of the peoples could decrease the sum of human misery to a vast extent by acting on the doctrine of human wickedness war he declares which is one of the worst of evils will always continue to exist but a wise king will decide a brief war rather than a lengthy one a short evil rather than a long evil and this not from the benignity of his heart towards his enemies for we have seen that the human heart is naturally malignant but because he desires to conquer and to conquer easily without a great expenditure of men or of treasure, knowing that if he can accomplish this feat, his people will love him and his crown will be secure. So he will wage brief victorious wars, and not only spare his own nation, but the nation of the enemy, since in a short war the loss is less on both sides than in a long war. And so from evil will come good. And how, ask Huvelius, are such wars to be waged? The wise prince, he replies, will begin by assuming the enemy to be infinitely corruptible and infinitely stupid, since stupidity and corruption are the chief characteristics of man. So the prince will make himself friends in the very councils of his enemy, and also amongst the populace, bribing the wealthy by proffering them the opportunity of still greater wealth, and winning the poor by swelling words, for contrary to the common opinion it is the wealthy who are greedy of wealth while the populace are to be gained by talking to them about liberty the unknown god and so much are they enchanted by the words liberty freedom and such like that the wise can go to the poor rob them of what little they have dismiss them with a hearty kick and win their hearts and their votes forever if only they will assure them that the treatment which they have received is called liberty. Guided by these principles, says Hevelius, the wise prince will entrench himself in the country that he desires to conquer. Nay, with but little trouble, he may actually have literally throw his garrisons into the hearts of the enemy country before war has begun. This is a long and tiresome parenthesis, but it is necessary as explaining the long tale which Merritt told his brother-in-law, he having received it from some magnate of the Midlands, who had travelled in Germany. 
It is probable that the story was suggested in the first place by the passage from Huvelius which I have just quoted. Merritt knew nothing of the real Huvelius. He was all but a saint. He thought of the Swedish professor as a monster of iniquity, worse, as he said, than Nietzsche, meaning, no doubt, Nietzsche. So he told the story of how Huvelius had sold his plan to the Germans, a plan for filling England with German soldiers. Land was to be bought in certain suitable and well-considered places. Englishmen were to be bought as the apparent owners of such land, and secret excavations were to be made till the country was literally undermined. A subterranean Germany, in fact, was to be dug under selected districts of England. There were to be great caverns, underground cities, well-drained, well-ventilated, supplied with water, and in these places vast stores both of food and of munitions were to be accumulated, year after year, till the day dawned, and then, warned in time, the secret garrison would leave shops, hotels, offices, villas, and vanish underground, ready to begin their work of bleeding England at the heart. That's what Hansen told me, said Merritt at the end of his long story. Hansen, head of the Buckley Iron and Steel Syndicate, he has been a lot in Germany. Well, said Louis, of course it may be so. If it is so, it is terrible beyond words. Indeed, he found something horribly plausible in the story. It was an extraordinary plan, of course, an unheard of scheme, but it did not seem impossible. It was the Trojan horse on a gigantic scale. Indeed, he reflected. The story of the horse with the warriors concealed within it, which was dragged into the heart of Troy by the deluded Trojans themselves, might be taken as the prophetic parable of what had happened to England, if Henson's theory were well founded. And this theory certainly squared with what one had heard of German preparations in Belgium and in France, emplacements for guns ready for the invader, German manufacturers which were really German forts on Belgian soil, the caverns by the Aden, made ready for the cannon. Indeed, Lewis thought he remembered something about suspicious concrete tennis courts on the heights commanding London. But the German army hidden under English ground, it was a thought to chill the stoutest heart. And it seemed from that wonder of the burning tree that the enemy mysteriously and terribly present at Mickleham was present also in Merion. Lewis, thinking of the country as he knew it, of his wild and desolate hillsides, his deep woods, his wastes and solitary places, could not be confessed that no more fit region could be found for the deadly enterprise of secret men. Yet, he thought again, there was but little harm to be done in Merion to the armies of England or to their munitionment. They were working for panic terror. Possibly that might be so, but the camp under the highway? That should be their first project, and no harm had been done there. Lewis did not know that since the panic of the horses, men had died terribly in that camp, that it was now a fortified place, with a deep, broad trench, a thick tangle of savage barbed wire about it, and a machine gun planted at each corner. End of chapter 7 Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts.
t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay. And the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. I've got some really good summer deals. And check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Jenny Clements. The Terror by Arthur Machen. What Mr. Merritt Found. Mr. Merritt began to pick up his health and spirits a good deal. For the first morning or two of his stay at the doctor's, he contented himself with a very comfortable deck chair close to the house, where he sat under the shade of an old mulberry tree beside his wife and watched the bright sunshine on the green lawns, on the creamy crests of the waves, on the headlands of that glorious coast, purple even from afar, with the imperial glow of the heather on the white farmhouses gleaming in the sunlight, high over the sea, far from any turmoil, from any troubling of men, The sun was hot, but the wind breathed all the while gently, incessantly, from the east, and Merritt, who had come to this quiet place not only from dismay, but from the stifling and oily airs of the smoky midland town, said that this east wind, pure and clear, and like well water from the rock, was new life to him. He ate a capital dinner at the end of his first day at Porth, and took rosy views. As to what they had been talking about the night before, he said to Lewis, no doubt there must be trouble of some sort, and perhaps bad trouble. Still, Kitchener would soon put it all right. So things went on very well. Merritt began to stroll about the garden, which was full of the comfortable spaces, groves, and surprises that only country gardens know. To the right of one of the terraces he found an arbor or summer house covered with white roses, and he was as pleased as if he had discovered the pole. 
He spent a whole day there smoking and lounging, and reading a rubbishy sensational story, and declared that the Devonshire roses had taken many years off his age. Then on the other side of the garden there was a filbert grove that he had never explored on any of his former visits, and again there was a find. Deep in the shadow of the filberts was a bubbling well, issuing from rocks and all manner of green, dewy ferns growing about it and above it, and an angelica springing beside it. Merritt knelt on his knees and hollowed his hand and drank the well water. He said, over his port, that night that if all the water were like the water of the filbert well, the world would turn to teetotalism. It takes a townsman to relish the manifold and exquisite joys of the country. It was not till he had begun to venture abroad that Merritt found that something was lacking of the old rich peace that used to dwell in Marion. He had a favorite walk which he never neglected year after year. This walk led along the cliffs towards Miros, and then one could turn inland and return to Porth by deep winding lanes that went over the Alt. So Merritt set out early one morning and got as far as a sentry box at the foot of the path that led up to the cliff. There was a sentry pacing up and down in front of the box, and he called on Merritt to produce his pass or to turn back to the main road. Merritt was a good deal put out and asked the doctor about this strict guard, and the doctor was surprised. "'I didn't know they had put their bar up there,' he said. "'I suppose it's wise. We are certainly in the far west here. Still, the Germans might slip round and raid us and do a lot of damage just because Marion is the last place we should expect them to go for.' "'But there are no fortifications, surely on the cliff?' "'Oh, no, I never heard of anything of the kind there.' "'Well, what's the point of forbidding the public to go on the cliff, then?' I can quite understand putting a sentry on top to keep a lookout for the enemy. What I don't understand is a sentry at the bottom who can't keep a lookout for anything, as he can't see the sea, and why warn the public off the cliffs. I couldn't facilitate a German landing by standing on Pingareg, even if I wanted to. It is curious, the doctor agreed. Some military reasons, I suppose. He let the matter drop, perhaps because the matter did not affect him. People who live in the country all year round, country doctors certainly, are little given to desultory walking in search of the picturesque. Lewis had no suspicion that sentries whose object was equally obscure were being dotted all over the country. There was a sentry, for example, by the quarry at La Hafangal, where the dead woman and the dead sheep had been found some weeks before. The path by the quarry was used a good deal, and its closing would have inconvenienced the people of the neighborhood very considerably. But the sentry had his box by the side of the track, and had his orders to keep everybody strictly to the path, as if the quarry was a secret fort. It was not known till a month or two ago that one of these sentries was himself a victim of the terror. The men on duty at this place were given certain very strict orders, which from the nature of the case must have seemed to them unreasonable. For old soldiers, orders are orders. But here was a young bank clerk, scarcely in training for a couple of months, who had not begun to appreciate the necessity of hard, literal obedience to an order which seemed to him meaningless. He found himself on a remote and lonely hillside, he had not the faintest notion that his every movement was watched, and he disobeyed a certain instruction that had been given him. The post was found deserted by the relief. The sentry's dead body was found at the bottom of the quarry. This, by the way, but Mr. Merritt discovered again and again that things happened to hamper his walks and his wanderings. Two or three miles from Porth, there is a great marsh made by the Afon River before it falls into the sea, and here Merritt had been accustomed to botanize mildly. He had learned pretty accurately the causeways of solid ground that led to the sea of swamp and ooze and soft-yielding soil, and he set out one hot afternoon determined to make a thorough exploration of the marsh, and this time to find that rare bog bean that he felt for sure must grow somewhere in its wide extent. He got into the by-road that skirts the marsh, and to the gate which he had always used for entrance. 
There was the scene as he had known it always, the rich growth of reeds and flags and rushes, the mild black cattle grazing on the islands of firm turf, the scented procession of the meadow sweet, the royal glory of the loosestrife, flaming pennons, crimson and golden of the giant dock. But they were bringing out a dead man's body through the gate. A laboring man was holding open the gate on the marsh. Merritt, horrified, spoke to him and asked who it was and how it had happened. They do say he was a visitor at Porth. Somehow he had been drowned in the marsh, whatever. But it's perfectly safe. I've been all over it a dozen times. Well, indeed, we did always think so. If he did slip by accident, like and fall into the water, it was not so deep. It was easy enough to climb out again. And this gentleman was quite young to look at him, poor man. And he has come to Marion for his pleasure and holiday and found his death in it. Did he do it on purpose? Is it suicide? They say he had no reasons to do that. Here the sergeant of police in charge of the party interposed, according to orders which he himself did not understand. A terrible thing, sir, to be sure, and a sad pity, and I am sure this is not the sort of sight you have come to see down in Marion this beautiful summer. So don't you think, sir, that it would have been more pleasant-like if you would leave us to the sad business of ours? I have heard many gentlemen staying in Porth say that there is nothing to beat the view from the hill over there, not in the whole of Wales. Everyone is polite in Marion, but somehow Merritt understood that, in English, the speech meant, move on. Merritt moved back to Porth. He was not in humor for any idle, pleasurable strolling after so dreadful a meeting with death. He made some inquiries in the town about the dead man, but nothing seemed known of him. It was said that he had been on his honeymoon, that he had been staying at the Porth Castle Hotel, but the people of the hotel declared that they had never heard of such a person. Merritt got the local paper at the end of the week. There was not a word in it of any fatal accident in the marsh. He met the sergeant of police in the street. That officer touched his helmet with the utmost politeness and the... Hope you are enjoying yourself, sir. Indeed, you do look a lot better already. But as to the poor man who was found drowned or stifled in the marsh, he knew nothing. The next day Merritt made up his mind to go to the marsh to see whether he could find anything to account for so strange a death. What he found was a man with an armlet standing by the gate. The armlet had the letters CW on it, which are understood to mean Coast Watcher. The watcher said he had strict instructions to keep everybody away from the marsh. Why? He didn't know. But some said that the river was changing its course since the new railway embankment was built, and the marsh had become dangerous to people who didn't know it thoroughly. Indeed, sir, he added, it is part of my orders not to set foot on the other side of that gate myself, not for one scraggend of a minute. Merrick glanced over the gate incredulously. The marsh looked as it always had. There was plenty of sound, hard ground to walk on. He could see the track that he used to follow as firm as ever. He did not believe in the story of the changing course of the river, and Lewis said he had never heard of anything of the kind. But Merritt had put the question in the middle of general conversation. He had not led up to it from any discussion of the death in the marsh, and so the doctor was taken unawares. If he had known of the conversation in Merritt's mind between the alleged changing of the Alphonse course and the tragical event in the marsh, no doubt he would have confirmed the official explanation. He was, above all things, anxious to prevent his sister and her husband from finding out that the invisible hand of terror that ruled at Midlingham was ruling also in Marion. Lewis himself had little doubt that the man who has found dead in the marsh had been struck down by the secret agency, whatever it was, that had already accomplished so much of evil. But it was a chief part of the terror that no one knew for certain that this or that particular event was to be ascribed to it. People do occasionally fall over cliffs through their own carelessness, and as the case of Garcia the Spanish sailor showed, cottagers and their wives and children are now and then the victims of savage and purposeless violence. Lewis had never wandered about the marsh himself, but 
Remnant had pottered around it and about it, and declared that the man who met his death there, his name was never known, in Porth at all events, must either have committed suicide by deliberately lying prone in the ooze and stifling himself, or else must have been held down in it. There were no details available, so it was clear that the authorities had classified this death with the others. Still, the man might have committed suicide, or he might have had a sudden seizure and fallen in the slimy water face down. And so on. It was possible to believe that case A or B or C was in the category of ordinary accidents or ordinary crimes, but it was not possible to believe that A and B and C were all in that category. And thus it was to the end, and thus it is now. We know that the terror reigned and how it reigned, but there were many dreadful events ascribed to its rule, about which there must always be room for doubt. For example, there was the case of the Marianne, the rowing boat which came to grief in so strange a manner, almost under Merritt's eyes. In my opinion, he was quite wrong in associating the sorry fate of the boat and her occupants with a system of signaling by flashlights, which he detected, or thought he detected, on the afternoon in which the Marianne was capsized. I believe his signaling theory to be all nonsense, in spite of the naturalized German governess who was lodging with her employers in the suspected house. But on the other hand, there is no doubt in my own mind that the boat was overturned and those in it drowned by the work of the terror. End of chapter 8